you can't go anywhere. Well, now I'm near nearly 230. These are firsts. Okay? It happened first here in Lewiston. Lewiston was the pioneer in this, either in the state, the region, the nation, the world. It happened here. And it is a phenomenal legacy, this community. Anybody who thinks that Lewiston doesn't have any heritage or any legacy or is a boring town, which somebody told me the other day, it's just boring town. I told him, you certainly don't know much about this town. This is one of the most interesting towns you could ever imagine. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Old Spiral Podcast. We are so glad you're here with us. This week, we have a very special guest. He's almost the most perfect guest we could ask for. Uh, this being a podcast on the Valley, Stephen Branting is a local historian uh, in the sense that he knows a lot of local history, and he is a historian that lives locally. So as you'll hear in our interview, he's from the Lewis-Clark Valley, or at least the surrounding area, and he's lived here for a lot of his life. I know he's built a family here, and he's spent a lot of time working in the Lewiston School District, and... He just knows more about this valley than I think anyone I've ever met. So this is a wonderful interview. We get to know Stephen. We get to hear about some of the books that he's written. And hopefully, if he's willing and we're able, we'd love to have him back on to talk about more specific topics of the Lewis-Clark Valley uh, because we could fill so many data cards, I suppose you'd say, these days with his knowledge and we're excited to have him on. Um, let's jump right into the interview. Before we do that, I just want to say thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. Um, you are the light in the darkness and the oil in the engine that keeps this running smoothly. Uh, even though, uh, we appreciate everyone who listens. We just wanted to give a special shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Thank you guys as always. Uh, also, last week we did the elephant episode about Mary the Elephant meeting her demise in downtown Lewiston, and I had a little bit of a hang-up on a term I came across in the Tribune article. Um, it was roustabouts and mahouts, mahouts, depending, I think mahouts is how you say it in Canada. Uh, either way, there was they were talking about the elephant handlers, and they called them roustabouts come mahouts, mahouts depending on which side of the border you're on. And I did not know what that meant. Uh, I guess a roustabout, I, it sound, a roustabout sounded familiar. Mahout did not sound familiar. A roustabout's just an unskilled day laborer. I'm sure that word used to be used a lot more in previous times. Uh, and then a mahout is just someone who works with elephants. So basically they were saying they were unskilled laborers, masquerading as elephant handlers and you can only imagine why not only mary got out i'm not going to give you any spoilers if you haven't listened to last week's episode but also how many of their other elephants um, either met similar fates or caused similar kind of trouble so anyway we have Stephen branding with us today uh we're very excited let's go to the interview
Hello, Stephen Branting. Uh, it's great for Hello. you to come and, and join the Old Spiral podcast. We're very happy to have you. Nice to be here. It's a beautiful day, a beautiful evening. Oh, it is a wonderful evening. Um, we, I was uh, just telling you earlier, I was at my friend's, uh, his daughter is very close age to my daughter. We had a little birthday party for her, and uh, it was a very nice afternoon. And, and mm-hmm. of course, we're having you, a lot of our listeners probably know who you are, um, uh, at least a little bit. Um, but uh, you're a local historian, and, and not just a historian of, of the LCV, but you're just a, a historian who is in the LCV. Mm-hmm. And I think before we, we delve into too much um, local history, which is what, of course, our podcast is going to be interested in, we'd like to get to know you a little bit better. So are you a lifelong LCV resident, or how did you come to uh, end up in, in this valley? Well, my family came to Idaho in the 1880s. They were, you know, territorial people. <clears throat> so I'm kind of well-grounded. I was born in a small town in Troy, Idaho. I was born in Moscow, but lived in Troy, Idaho, as a young boy. Came here, educated, Lewiston High School in 1966. I graduated with the last class of Lewis Clark Normal. Oh, okay. Uh, when the Normal School was changed. Uh, taught at the Normal. Uh, you did, taught for a graduate program at the University of Idaho. Uh, taught for Lewiston School District for 33 years. I taught gifted children, designed programs for gifted and talented students. So I enjoyed my career very much. I retired in 20, 2009. Oh, no, I can't. 2009. I hate the word letter O uses a number. I've been I've been listening too much. <laughs> well, yeah, it's uh, that that always kind of threw me when we got to that, the 20. 20- Zero nine or twenty oh nine, but yeah, you say, well, right. how would you say, you know, ni- the year nineteen hundred and eight, for example? You say nineteen oh eight, right? That's I right. Know. Um. <laughs> uh. Anyway, so my my grandpa, he actually went to um, the Lewis Clark Normal College back in the mm-hmm. day, so that was that's kind of interesting. So you were a teacher, and and was most of your time at Lewiston High School then after um after the Normal <laughs> College. Well, I, uh, when I graduated from the normal, uh, I went away and taught in two other districts. So I came back to Lewiston, uh, a, kind of a, what you'd call a tenured teacher. I'd been teaching college preparatory. I was trained, uh, of course, as, as a historian, but I was also trained in English and French literature, you know, all the very uh, kids who were going on to school for a very academic track. And so I had been teaching that and uh, not an opportunity opened up in a new program that had just been piloted in Lewiston. This is 1976, and it happened to be a gifted program, which is called NOVA. That's the name most people stick to it. And so I went in the program. I thought, well, I'll be there for a few years, then I'll go back to teaching Moliere or Shakespeare or something like that. That never happened. (laughs) And fortunately, it didn't happen, because if I had gone back to the classroom uh, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do some of the very unusual things that happened in my career of being able to design programs that were outside the classroom that took my students across the nation, uh, that you know, gave us a chance to intermingle with some of the great experts in many fields, uh, to be evaluated and uh, kind of give our input and to impact things that were going on around us that I would never have had that opportunity as a classroom teacher. I love classroom teachers. I like teaching a classroom. I've done it many years. I go back sometimes and still do it. But the, the flexibility of being a consultant to the faculty and an advisor to students, what they call a facilitator, 
of gifted education means you make things happen. And that that's a, that's a whole different role. And it was a lot of fun for me. I kind of fell naturally into that. Very good. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a long answer to a very short question. <laughs> no, I like it. I like the long answers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's great. And I mean, I, I think Brian and I, as we discussed earlier, we, we both remind or remember seeing you at, at LHS over, over the years in our time there. And, uh, it, you know, we're very excited to have you on and, um, I think we should just get started by maybe maybe you could go over some of the books that you've written and and kind of what those are about, if you could give us a description of those. Well, I've written eight. Um, it's the, my first big book really start, didn't start as a book at all. I had no plans to write any books. I had written articles for many years for national magazines. <clears throat> and lo and behold, the 150th anniversary of the city came up. Uh, people kind of forgot about it. And I said, you know, you might want to do a little looking, adding 150 to 1861. Well, that's 2011. Everybody panicked because it's 2010 <laughs> and nothing had been done. So th- that was very successful. We had a wonderful year. We had over 80 activities during the year. It was a big, big deal. Just so many people came out and volunteered, took a lot of uh, organization. People stepped up. It was a, a very successful year. As a result of that, there were a number of historical lectures given. And so people had always asked me, well, what happened first here in Lewiston? Is there anything special to happen in Lewiston? So I said, well, let me dig around. And so I started digging. And the more I dug, the more I found. And by the time I got around, they said, would you like to present a lecture? And I said, sure, I'll do a lecture. Well, when we got to that point, I was getting close to 100. And I said, I can't. I gave a lecture and I finally told people to go home. I said, hey, I got to stop. <laughs> I was supposed to talk for an hour. And I said, can I give you 10 more minutes? Can you give me 10 more minutes? I said, I got home. We can't go anymore. Well, now I'm near nearly 230. These are firsts. Okay? It happened first here in Lewiston. Lewiston was the pioneer in this, either in the state, the region, the nation, the world. It happened here. And it is a phenomenal legacy, this community. Anybody who thinks that Lewiston doesn't have any heritage, or any legacy, or is a boring town, which somebody told me the other day, it's just boring town. I told him, you certainly don't know much about this town. Said, this is one of the most interesting towns you can ever imagine. Well, I it think just, you are uh, you're probably the perfect guest for this podcast, because that's exactly <laughs> our message that we want to get across. Yeah. I can tell you more stories than you got taped. <laughs> well, it's all digital now, so try us. With my ages, I would go the old real, real Ampex tapes. Well, first, 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 another than a radio, the first thing I put in my car was a four-track tape, not right? eight-track, not eight-track, four-track. <laughs> Big Brother and the Holding Company, Janis Joplin. Ooh, good one. Well, well that's way back. Could you could you give us just a couple uh, off the top of your head examples of some some of your most uh, I guess your favorite or the most interesting firsts in Lewiston that you can think of maybe just a few off the top of your head? Well, sure. Um, I think one of the most I think one of the most uh, impactful things in terms of just uh, the changes in society happened in May of 1881 when the territorial legislature chartered the Lewiston School District as the very first school district in Idaho. There were school districts in Idaho, but they were little local things. The legislature had not been involved in terms of setting up taxes and levies and 
you know, those kinds of things. It was not formalized. But when they got around to it, in the session that started December of 1880, Lewiston was the very first one. And because of that, in its charter, that's why it's Lewiston Independent School District number one. Oh, People wonder why that number that. I that's did kind of wonder that. That's number one. There's a number one in boy in down in Southern Idaho, but they changed it so they could be number one. There's only number one. You can't have two number ones. <laughs> Lewiston's number one. Well, when they had the charter, in the charter, it specifically says that there is no distinction between male and female in terms of who can run for office and who can vote in this election. So in May of 1881, when the first election for the school board came up, the first board of directors, two women ran for office. But one of the women, Fanny Poe, was the, was the uh, wife of Judge uh, James Poe, very famous attorney and judge, who became, went on to become one of the first uh, uh, trustees at the New Normal School in 1893. Poe Grade is named after him. You know, when you go up from downtown, that's Poe Grade. They, used to, mm -hmm. they lived out the bottom of the hill. The second woman was Sarah, or they called her Sally, Vollmer. Vollmer Bowl, ring a bell? Oh, yeah. John Vollmer was the first millionaire in Idaho that was actually worth a million dollars. At the height, he owned 36,000 acres of land in that central Idaho. Uh, had banks and stores all over this area. He was, brought the railroad into Lewiston. was big into the steamboat industry. The guy had, well, at the time, a million dollars in 1880. You can only imagine what Yeah, probably about $20 million now, 20 oh, or 30. at least that. You're just starting at that point, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because you think about what it takes to what it takes to keep a family, a roof and clothes and, uh, you know, those kinds of things are just the, the basics. Uh, a million dollars might be 50 million today. Yeah. Okay. Well, actually, uh, we looked it up on last week's episode with Mary the Elephant. One, hmm? was it 1.7 million in 1928 was 26.5 million yeah. today. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah 30, 40, 50 what, million. Yeah. yeah. It depends on where you, there are all kinds of, if you're doing a project or, if you're doing some kind of investments, they, they have different values, but that's sure. a pretty close. Yeah. A lot of money. It's gone up. Yeah. So Mrs. Vollmer and Mrs. Poe ran for office and they actually, women voted in the election. I remember they both ran for office and voted. Interestingly, they both lost. Okay. But more men voted for the women than women voted for the women. <laughs> a higher percentage. But they, the Lewis and Teller said later, they said, you know, they were there. They brought a lot of a lot of interest to this election. But we think that the that the electorate didn't think they could probably handle the financial matters of the district, hmm. which is absurd. Yeah, it the is. reason why it's absurd, because most of the men who owned a lot of property in Lewiston didn't own it in their own names. They put it in the names of their wives. Their wives managed all this property. You go back and look at the deeds. It's not in the men's name. It's all in the women's name. <laughs> I mean, who a man brought his money home. That the old joke was: you bring the paycheck home, you bring home the bacon. Who fries the bacon? Right, your wife. <laughs> so, yeah, these women were smart ladies. They were what I call doyens. It's a French word meaning uh, uh, a woman of great influence in the community. Okay. She walks in the room and everybody turns their head, and it's not because she's beautiful. She packs a punch in influence. And they were doyens. Hmm. 
So that's a that's a, a major one. Those are I both think, really um, impressive firsts. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, when you when you get over two hundred, uh, you know, uh, uh, all the evidence now points to the very first Boy Scout troop being formed here in Lewiston, because really? it was well established by the time President Taft came in October of nineteen eleven. That means we think that the uh, the Boy Scout troop probably was founded somewhere to the end of 1910 or early 1911, which is well ahead of any other troop in the state, hmm. in the region, actually. That's another uh, very interesting one. Um, you know, there are just so many. I, it's hard for me to isolate. There's, I mean, these are, these are things that happened because people took – they didn't see it as risk. Uh, we think – of people innovating because they risk something. Many times in history, you'll find that things happen only because people had the necessity to do something. They had to adapt to, to a new situation, a new climate, uh, the new conditions of the river were changing. So they did things. You, know, you have to remember that Lewiston had no bridges until 1899. Everything was done by ferry. But the ferry operators made such a fortune off people it would cost you in uh, 18, that's about 1875, it would take you to take a wagon and team across the snake from Lewiston now to Clarkston would cost you $5 one way. Oh, now, wow. Do the inflation. Yeah. It's a fortune. The guys were making money hand over fist. They had a captive audience. People didn't travel across the river very often. Hmm. They, would, they would do whatever they could to, to limit how many times they would have. Of course, there was no Clarkston who wants to go to where there's nothing there. Right. But it was... The Clearwater is a little different because there was a ro old road, which is only parts of its left, an old road, that, a grade that used to go up the hill to Uniontown. It took them a long time to get the railroad here because how do you bring a railroad down the Lewiston Hill? Yeah, really. Now, if you know anything about it, where does the railroad come into Lewiston? Well, it comes in downriver, okay? But that didn't come in until 1908. Go back another decade, where did they get the, where did the railroad come from? It came down the Clearwater. It went through Kendrick. Hmm. You went up the ridge through Kendrick. That's how the and got up on the flat to Moscow. Huh. That's the only way they could get a railroad in here. But it took a long time to figure that route out. Moscow had a railroad long before Lewiston ever had. Yeah, Lewiston but, had steamships. But that Lewiston was. Uh, I don't know about always, but Lewiston was almost always a bigger town than Moscow, though, wasn't it? Well, Moscow was just a, nothing until the university came. Right. Yeah, 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 it was nothing. And that was Hog heaven. Yeah, that was after the um, capital got moved too. That the university moved. Oh yeah, to much, much later. Uh, there's a. I could tell you a funny story. Okay, <clears throat> Moscow wanted to be this county seat because the count Nespers County was much larger in those days, and Moscow felt that it should be the county seat in the 1880s. Well, it wasn't even incorporated. Lewiston had been incorporated since 1863. It's the oldest incorporated city in Idaho was incorporated in the Washington Territory. <clears throat> so Moscow says, no, we want to do this. Well, the county the county commissioner said, no, they had the votes. No, we're not going to do that. So <clears throat> the businessmen of Moscow figured, let's take it. They took advantage of a new law. It was called the Varmint Law. Interesting name. You know what a name. varmint is. Okay? Yeah. yeah. You know what varmints are. You know, like uh, coyotes and uh, yeah. all those things. Well, according to these people of Moscow, they had a varmint. That really needed to be taken care of. And it was those pesky squirrels. They were just causing havoc. 
they were they were overrunning the place up there. Nobody listened to anything about this. I mean, <laughs> if you I lived I've lived downtown since the 1980s. We had lots of squirrels. The orchards had no squirrels at all when I was growing up there. You never saw a squirrel in the orchard. Now they're all over the place. Yeah. Well, there were squirrels supposedly overrunning Paradise Valley in Moscow. So based on the varmint law, they got it passed in the in these county commissioners to pay them a dollar a pelt for every squirrel they could bring in. They killed 120,000 squirrels. <laughs> they found them everywhere, any place they could find them. And they nearly bankrupted the county. What did Nespers County do? Well, they still didn't want to lose Moscow. Moscow said, well, if that doesn't do it, they went to the delegate in the U.S. Congress. And they said, we want to be our own county. And so Congress created Latah County, the only county in the United States to be created by Congress, oh, not by wow, a legislature. Okay. And it all started with squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> because the court, the guys in the courthouse, which used, the old courthouse used to sit where the museum is today. It was the old Luna House Hotel. And they, and they just wouldn't buckle under this pressure. And they just, they took them to the cleaners. All, and finally, they had to pull the district attorney in to, to really rule whether this varmint fund, the squirrel fund, they call it. It's actually called the squirrel fund <laughs> in the old records, whether it was even legal. Right. <laughs> the money was out the door already. Yeah. My <laughs> goodness. Out the barn. <laughs> it's out the barn. <laughs> well, you know, so you're giving these talks um, and you're trying to come up with all these firsts. You give all these firsts and that somehow became a book. Yeah, you, hey, Gladford, you brought me back on task here. Okay? That's my I job. Can, there you are. See, <laughs> don't, don't get me started because I can I can end up in left field real fast. Hey, don't let us because we'll just let you go too. So <laughs> we'll take advantage of it. <laughs> yeah, until my phone runs down here, okay, I'll have to plug it in here. Yeah, <laughs> right. Anyway, so about a year after I gave this lecture, a publisher called me and said, we have heard about this lecture. Would you like to publish it in a book? I said, well, it wasn't meant to be a book never set up that way. It was set up as a whole series of about 111 stories because that's where I stopped. And they said, that's okay. If you just give us the manuscript, we'll set it up and give us pictures. And I said, oh, yeah, I can give you photographs and stuff because it was an illustrated talk. And they published it. It was called Historic First of Lewis in Idaho, Unintended Greatness. Because it wasn't intended to be great. It was just unintended. We just did these things. And, oh, you mean nobody's ever done that before? <laughs> yeah. It was unintended. And it became a very popular book. I have lost count, but I think right now it's in its eighth or ninth reprinting. Mm, wow. It's just a small book. It was nothing it was nothing other than just an, an illustrated talk, and it just took off like wildfire. Hmm. Oh, man. So they said, came back and said, would you do another book? And so that led to Hidden History of Lewiston, which led to Lost Lewiston, which led to Wicked Lewiston. And then I wrote two other books, one for the uh, uh, the DAR, which is was celebrating their centennial, the Daughters of the American Revolution. Okay. And another one for the Seminicum Club, which was the oldest women's organization in the community, uh, a civic group. Uh, there are there is a sorority, uh, the Rebe I should say sorority, the Rebeccas are older, but they're associated with a lodge. Okay. But the Seminicum Club wanted that, so I wrote a book for them. And then I wrote a book. Um, the seventh book was on the orchards because it had never been approached. No one had ever talked about it. 
I thought, well, you know, I grew up there as a kid. I remember a lot of things. Oh, not much. I turned turned out because I only went to one school and everybody else went to orchard school. I went to Warner, which is McGee now. So I started writing that and that just, that was just an eye opener just to find out a lot of families were still around. Their grandchildren were still nearby. Pictures came out of the woodwork and it was really a lot of fun. And then my last one, which I put together for the college to fund scholarships because uh, I just felt, you know, we need to do something good for the college. The last history of the college was written 25 years ago. And it was a much different style of book. And I said, you know, let me tell you, let's do it like a, a like a diary. Let's start in January and December. Let me tell you all the stories that would not make it into a book about little scandals, about the burst at the college faked uh, being beaten up and he was just embezzling money and had two sets of books. And, <laughs> yeah, this is real. This is true. Okay. That's all true. <laughs> and so I tell all these stories, all these pictures, and it has been a lot of fun. That's, that, that's my, that was, that came out last fall. Very good. So, so how, how, what's the time frame of those books? When did you start writing and kind of when did the last one come out your, between your first one well, and your I, last one? I, I, I started writing the, the first book was written uh, really as a kind of, um, well, it was written as, a, I started as a, it was, uh, I started on January the 1st and went to December 31st and I started finding Every day I could find some kind of link to start on January 1st. What happened in the city? Maybe I can have four or five things, write it down, get it, catalog it. So we wouldn't have to go back and find it all the time. Let's get it down. Okay. So, so it was really a catalog. And that, that, that book grew to over a hundred. That, that was just a list of a little bit of description. Okay. Here's a picture. We might tag to it. That grew to a hundred thousand words pretty quickly, which is way too long for a book. Most of my books run about oh, 160 to 180 pages. And that, that's 50,000 words. So now go 100,000 words and start putting pictures in. You're talking about some big, thick books, which publishers don't like to do. I tried, w, I tried to talk WSU into this <laughs> before I published my first book. They turned it down. Oh, no. I <laughs> <laughs> think they're kicking themselves now. My books have sold around 10,000 volumes now. Oh, wow. wow. About 10,000. So, you know, I don't make a huge – no, listen, I didn't get rich off this. Royalties are very small when you do these kinds of things. So uh, I didn't buy a yacht or – you know, second home in, in Monaco or anything. <clears throat> but I sure enjoyed it. Hey, everyone. Just wanted to take a quick break to tell you about our new Patreon account. That's right, OSP fans. You can now directly help us fund this show and get access to exclusive content. For more information and to learn how you can support the show, head to patreon.com slash old spiral podcast. Now back to the show. But it started about um, 2010, and my last book was released in October of 2019. So it's over that period of time. So about eight years. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and 2010 is when we graduated from high school. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, so about a book a year coming out. Well, first I was writing magazine articles. I've written, I don't know, I can't tell you how many magazine articles. And what magazines do you generally publish in? Well, it depends on what's available. I published in the Western Historical Quarterly uh, History Teacher. Well, that's one. That was a hard one to get into. I mean, oh, everyone really? and their dog wants in that one. To get in that one, that was a big. That was a real coup. I was just very proud to do that. Um, I've published in Idaho Yesterday's, Idaho Magazine, Nostalgia. Uh, the local historical society always wants an article from me for you know the issues, uh, two issues a year for the Golden Age, and I always have something for them. Uh, this is my latest article. Is 
is slated to go in, but it's kind of long. You know, I get <clears throat> I get to writing and I find out more than I thought I'd ever find. And you really have to keep it in there. You know, you as I mentioned before we started, I don't write so much for people who are going to read it right now. And say, boy, I'm sure glad he wrote all those references down. Now we know where he got the information. Uh, because I'm always asking people, you know, there's <clears throat> there's an old saying, in God we trust. And that's fine. But everybody else better bring data. <laughs> no, I, expect yeah. some source, I expect some source material, okay? Yeah, I, I learned that the uh, the hard way in uh, Eric Martin's History 200, uh, uh, his historiography oh, yeah. class. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte famously said, history, the version of the past upon which people have decided to agree. Sure. And that can get you into a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah. Remember George Orwell would talk to about controlling the past. It's whoever controls the present controls the past. That's right. Uh, 1984, I believe. Yeah. You, I read 1984 well before 1984. <laughs> I was reading it in the 1960s. And I was going, oh, my. And 1984 came, and it was there already. Right. And we see it today tremendously oh. of kind of a rewriting, uh, revisionist kind of, okay, let's just retell this. We reappreciate things. We're looking things. We look at things through different filters. We can't change the facts. We might we might interpret them a little differently, but the facts are still going to be there. You cannot change that. We might better understand the personalities of why people were doing things that way. It doesn't change what they did. Mm-hmm. You cannot change that. The past, there are no time machines. Remember, in, in the time machine by H.D. Wells, he did not go into the past. He only went into the future. Mm. Okay? So you have to think about that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to plug in my phone here. I'm going to. I'm uh, running low on power, and I don't want us to go blur. Okay, I'm back on. Oh, sure, good. Since we're not on video, it makes it real easy. It does. Okay, now that I've got you <clears throat> thoroughly committed, you don't ask carefully questions. Okay. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> So did each of those books sort of flow seamlessly into the next one? I mean, it, it sounded like you you started to learn more about about the town and and these firsts, and then it kind of went into another and another. Or was it was it sort of a fact finding mission for other projects that you you wrote these other books? First of all, they didn't. Uh, the first two books were kind of isolated from each other. The second book was kind of stories I knew about that I never had a chance to tell. They weren't historically famous, but they were important stories that needed to be told or stories that needed to be clarified. There was a lot of, a lot of misinformation. Uh, and then as I got to Lost Lewiston, I said, you know, we better look at this thematically. If I'm going to do a book like this, we need to start tackling some major themes. How did the churches get started in Lewiston? How did the different areas of Lewiston, downtown, Normal Hill, the orchards, how did those develop in sequence? Knowing that eventually, like in Lost Lewis, and I talk about the orchards, but it would take another couple books to come back to it to do it full telling. It was almost like a primer. And once I tell the story, I'll go back and say, you know, that needs to be told in greater detail. I've given enough information just to whet an appetite, not the least of which is my own. And let me go back and look at this in really close detail. And books are a long process. Uh, uh, an average book for me will take about uh, four to six months 
of research and writing and editing. We call it wordsmithing, you know, and uh, that is that, that's a, a process. It's like giving birth to a baby. Okay, once you're done, you kind of forget about it. But <laughs> while it's going on, it sure does hurt. <laughs> so I've heard that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's kind of something we're dealing with. With every once in a while, we'll we'll touch on a little bit of Lewiston history, and we'll get done with our episode, and we'll say, "Man, we need to get we need to get more information on that. We need to get people in and do some interviews yeah. of people who were there, and 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 because there's only so much you can find out, you know, if you have a deadline. Yes. And and yeah. on that and uh, on that note. Uh, do you have sort of any recommendations for the sort of armchair historian that would want to learn more about Lewiston's history? Or are there any sort of resources here locally or places you might visit to, to delve in? Or, or how, how do you start your process when you're, when you're trying to find out more about Lewiston's history? Well, I go, I go only to primary sources. Okay, so I'm looking at old newspapers. I'm trying to find diaries, uh, family histories. To, to cross-reference them to make sure that everything dovetails, kind of matches up. <clears throat> because, you know, I have a story. Uh, I think I could probably tell you this story. Um, a woman told me a story that her mother told her that that uh, a doctor here in Lewis had a, had a brother who was um, – no, nah, I can't tell you that story. Okay, okay, get up. <laughs> I, I better not tell you the story. I don't want you – nobody. I don't want people calling you, telling you. The branding is totally straight. So I say, I can't corroborate the story, but if I can, it'll raise the hair on the back of your head. Okay? Mm. Ooh. Well, something happened down on Main Street, Lewiston. So, hmm. uh, for, in terms of armchair, well, there have been a number of books over the years that have published. Uh, the Tribune has a couple of nice books, which are photographic books. So if you like to sit and look at photographs and appreciate the town as it looked, I think those are really valuable. They're kind of entry level. Uh, Jerry McGuire, Jackson McGuire has written books on Clarkson and Lewis and Soton County, which are a little bit of, they're not, not heavy into the text. So you're not getting into something that's you have to sit and read. I'm kind of the other end of it. I'm not to the point where you're, you're picking up a book that's going to win a Pulitzer, but, or I say Pulitzer, everybody says Pulitzer. I'm sorry. Pulitzer. (laughs) Uh, Tomatoes and tomatoes. it'll It'll give you the background. Good, solid background information that you can depend on because it's been thoroughly researched okay? and not, not bog you down in all the footnotes. You know, this is not Shakespeare. We don't have to all the foot. We don't have to have all the footnotes. So those are good. Um, uh, Lewis and Country has been reprinted. That was uh, uh, Margaret Day Allen, who was a reporter for the Tribune for many years, uh, wrote that book out of columns. This goes way back to the centennial of the city back in, in 1961. And those that that was put together as a compilation. Very nice book. It has some things that needed to be updated, but it was what they understood at the time. So we we find out a lot more as we go along. That that happens in science and medicine too, doesn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we hope so, anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I would hope so too. Um, hey, well, how much time have we been on this, guys? Um, Am actually, over recording? Uh, we've done probably about 30 minutes. Okay. Uh, okay. I just want to make sure it's not overtime on you. Oh, no we time. have no time limit. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, our, but, our time limit is your time limit. Yeah. Uh, oh. And, and this episode, you know, we've been wanting to get to know you and, and kind of your history on history and, and then maybe we can do, if you're open to it, we'd love to do some more, uh, episodes in the future that are on maybe a specific topic. Sure. We could uh, focus on a topic where, you know. 
um, I can describe the pictures as best I can, but you know radio. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's like uh, years ago, there were two characters on radio. It was Julio Copter and Audio Visual. They were two uh, Spanish-speaking, and they had kind of broken English. And the one guy would say, it would not make uh, something, he had heard a story, and it would make you make your face go like this. I don't know what it did look like because he was on radio. <laughs> so, so I have a face for radio. <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, and then maybe for today, um, shoot, would you mind uh, giving us a, a good a good Lewiston story that that you can tell us now that you've teased us so brutally with <laughs> with the hair raising story you won't tell? Maybe you could uh, leave us off with one okay. one of your favorites. All right, I'll tell you a story. It's in Wicked Lewiston. <clears throat> Back in 1916, a young guy in Lewiston, his name was Richard Jewell Fring, F-R-E-N-G. Richard had gotten out of high school and was working for a local farmer. And he had gotten hurt in an accident on one of the harvesters. And so he got medical care and all that stuff. Well, he got angry at his employer and went to him and said, I'm going to sue you. Okay. Well, the employer said, well, you know, if I need to cover something, just give me the bill. I'll take care of everything for you. Well, Jewel got in his head that the guy had tried to cheat him, and he started to Harrison. Well, one day in December, down at New Sixth and Main, he walked up to the guy's carriage. His wife and new baby were in the carriage with him and pulls a gun on him. Says, you're going to come with me over into the drugstore, the building still sits on New 6th and Main, used to be H&R Block, and it was the Eidenhoff Pharmacy. He says, you're coming in here and you're going to write a check. In the old days, and I remember this as a kid, you could write what are called counter checks. Businesses would have open checks and you would write them on your bank, and you can't do that today. (laughs) Banks don't do that today. But they used to be able to do it. He says, you're going to sit down, you're going to write this check out, you're going to give me some money. Well, the pharmacist tells the the farmer, uh, Lester Griffin, he said, uh, you can't, you, you, nobody's going to cash that check. Just go ahead and make it out. No big deal. Well, somebody had seen the young guy pull the, pull the gun and force this guy into the pharmacy, left his wife and baby out in the buggy. And they'd call the police. Well, here comes the police officer who would later become police chief for years. And they're, they, they're in the, the drugstore and the police officer walks in. And the young guy, Joel Fring, starts shooting. He panics, puts a bullet in the back of Griffin, kills him right there, shoots at the pharmacist. It was Chris Osmers who helped found the well all drug. The bullet goes up his sleeve over his shoulder, just missed him by inches. Hmm. And the police officer tackles him. There's a short trial in December, and he gets sent to the prison for life. Young guy, just young. Here you got a widow raising a little baby who will never remember her father. She's too young. So the kid goes to prison. This is 1917. In 1922, he'd been in prison for five years, and something had been going on inside of his head. Because he, had, when they had had him in, in jail up here, he had broken out of the Nespers County Jail with a couple of other guys. And they'd, taken on, they'd gone on the lam. And the kid had come back to talk to his parents to say what he's going to do. And his father said, no, you're going to turn yourself in. And he finally does. So here he is in the state pen. He goes down to the barbershop. This is 1922. 
gets in there to have a shave. Barber, you know, turns his back. The kid reaches over and grabs a straight razor and slits his own throat right there in the barbershop. Hmm. He couldn't take it anymore. I mean, what a, I mean, nobody won in this case. Nobody no. won. It was just tragic all the way around. And he, they brought his body back. He's buried with his parents up on the, on the Camas Prairie. But it was a, a really tragic situation. I've got wonderful photographs, not of the crime scene, <laughs> but of all the people who were in the story, I've got photographs of them all. Wow. And all the things. Guy that was killed, I've got a picture of the wife and the baby, and the guy in his mugshot, and the police officer who came in, the pharmacist, they're all there. What just a this, drama. This <laughs> just a few seconds that just up, upset the whole town. Huh. Well, it, and as I mentioned before, when we were, when we were talking, I, I haven't had a chance to read cover to cover all of your books, but I have been able to peruse all of them. And just as you mentioned here, the level of detail is, is great. You, you've gone and gathered all these photos. Your knowledge is sound. I mean, it's, it's really in depth. And for anybody that wanted to go and pick up a copy of these books, is there anywhere here local where somebody could go check those, check those out or purchase oh, them? Sure. Um, right now, uh, and books two in Clarkston, uh, river chicks in Clarkston down by rooster's landing. Um, the museum, of course, bargain hunter mall, uh, herb hardware in the orchards has started to carry Lewiston books. Oh, wow. Local history books. They've gotten really involved in that kind of surprised me when they called me. Well, they've got um, some history too with herb. Yes. Oh yeah. The herb family goes way back. Uh, the the original herb home up in the orchard still stands on Stewart Avenue. Oh, neat. It was it was it was turned into a, a what is called a roadhouse. <laughs> a roadhouse. It was turned into a roadhouse during the 1940s because if you don't know, Lewiston was declared off limits to the military from 1943 <laughs> to 1946. The town was so raucous that when Enlistees would come in and have a little R and R in Lewiston. They'd come back Monday morning, not worth anything. <laughs> <laughs> and so they were completely closed down. You could, nobody could come in. The only people who could come to Lewiston and stay were people who lived here. Their parents lived here. I knew a friend of mine, Mike Mitchell. He was a state senator. He was aide to Cecil Andrus for years. Mike would tell me. He said, "Yes, Steve. When I came back during World War II, he was in the Navy. He said I could come here because my folks lived on Normal Hill, but my cousin." lived on the prairie. He said, Steve, when I got here on the train, you didn't stick around town or the MPs would get you. <laughs> you, got, you came and you headed out of town. You went home because there were no, nobody here. Was oh my goodness. <laughs> well, the town was just prostitution, gambling, drinking. Uh, a friend of mine said he watches a teenager. He watched a poker game as a teenager. This is the thirties. He said at least $15,000 was in the pot. Oh my game. goodness. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive. Well, you've got all your books, and we've heard where they can we can find them online. And I know you also do some uh, uh, posting on some Facebook pages. Is that a part of the mm -hmm. historical? Where, where, what Facebook pages can people look at for history? Well, when I when I published my first book, I thought, well, then Facebook was starting to get popular. I said, well, let me have, let me tell people stories. And so in January of 2013, I began a page called Historic Lewiston. And every day I post stories. I can't tell you how many thousands of pictures are on there now. Just thousands of stories. I usually do a story or two every day. I'll show a picture, a photograph that I found or had been sent to me by a family or somebody somewhere they found in an old box. 
and I'll look at it and say, let me describe what's in the picture. Here's probably when the picture was taken. Here's what you're looking at. You're looking east or northeast. You're on the corner of. This building on the left was torn down or burned down in 1942. You know, if you're that old, you may remember. People will come on and say, oh, yes, I found that. I, I, I found the picture. I remember that. Uh, the other day I posted a picture. Uh, somebody put a thing of, does anybody remember when Lewis and students had dog tags? Actually, and, my aunt, Darla, was in that photo. That's my that's, right. that's my aunt. She Isn't married my uncle. Yeah. And I found, I found a picture of her as a little girl yeah. looking at her dog tag. Uh-huh. And I'd written about that some time back, and people, somebody brought the topic up again. Hmm. So I said, well, let me show you a little picture that I found of this one. Isn't it interesting? It all comes around again. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. Well, History is only is is really not the past. It no. really is the present too. Uh, we just think. I think it was past. You think of history in the present tense. It's the past in the present tense. Hmm. And if you think that way, it never dies. Man. It's always part. It always has some way of make of changing you or making you appreciate. You walk down a street to think. Oh man, this this must have been quite a neighborhood in 1925. I can imagine the kids and the little old cars driving by. Well, yeah, it's different today, but it hasn't changed. Wow, it's still full of families and kids. Well, I think um, we have uh, just a, two questions left for you. I've got one, and it's um, you know, I, I I could probably guess it, but what are some of your favorite things about uh, living in the valley? What are some of your favorite things about the Lewiston Clarkson Valley? Well, this has changed a lot since I moved here. I moved here in 1952, and when I lived in the orchards, uh, that's where all the the farmer kids lived. We were clodhoppers. We were bowhunks. We all wore overalls and had one strap down and chewed a <laughs> piece of straw, you know, wheat. In our, you know. Oh, yeah. That's how the downtown kids thought of us. I mean, for a long time. We didn't have sewers <coughs> until I was almost into high school. So – the town has changed because they, where do most people live in Lewis now? In the orchards. Right. Okay? It's all developed. Uh, you know, we used to ride the bus. and The movie houses were downtown. All the doctors were downtown. So Main Street is the big thing. When I was growing up here, boy, Main Street was the place to go. That was just bustling all the time. The bus depot was down. The big hotels. See, now we have the Lewis Clark Hotel, which isn't even a hotel anymore. No. But there was the Bollinger down there. Uh uh, the, the the Raymond House was there, so big popular hotels, and just a lot of just a lot of business. Uh, the train was still. You could just I jumped on the train. My grandparents lived in Kendrick. I would go down and they had a little a diesel. We call it the Bug. It was a diesel car and it would seat I can't remember how many, probably forty or fifty people, and you could take it all the way to Spokane. But I jump on it, and of course the railroad went through Kendrick, so I jumped. My dad had dropped me off at the train depot which is a law office now down at 13th Main. And I'd take off on the train, go ahead, and my aunt would pick me up at the train depot in Kendrick. That was nothing. That was the way you did things. Right. It was great. It was great. Now everybody got a driver or one swimming pool. It was new downtown. Um, and, you know, the reason why we have a swimming pool, why they built the swimming pool in 47, which is down by Vollmer Park, uh, Vollmer Bowl. We, it's actually Vollmer Park. We call it Fenton Park today. Uh, was because too many kids were drowning in the clear water. I was wondering if that was the reason. Yeah. Kids were getting, they were drowning all the time in the clear water snake. I had a friend of mine who would drown trying to swim across a snake. He got caught and drowned. Yeah. I mean, so you just, they just had to have something different. So does that answer your first question? That definitely answers the question. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's that's great. Uh, I, I love li- hearing those little tidbits, you know, and uh, as lifelong residents of the town, we've certainly seen it change. But, yeah. uh, you know, it, it's great to hear sort of some of those things that others have seen change over the years as well. Well, that's why I love the old photographs. Right. To see the old photos and see a neighborhood that doesn't look like that at all today. Right. Part of a street or something. So I'm constantly getting pictures from people showing their their neighborhood. I have pictures now of my house in the late 40s. A friend of mine lived with his grandparents here when he was growing up. And he found some old photographs and, gave, and sent them to me. He digitized them. So I am to, I'm restoring my back porch to look like it did when with his grandmother sitting out in the grass. Oh, wow. And this is like 1949 or yeah, 50. Yeah, that's neat. So. <laughs> that's great. Um, you know, and and another question that we ask is sort of just for fun. Uh, you mentioned some some bands that you like earlier, uh, like uh, Janis Joplin, but we always ask sort of uh, w- what's your favorite band or or what's, what's sort of some of your favorite bands at the time? Oh, of the time? Or 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 any time it could anytime. be time yeah. Oh, I'm a little I'm a little too old for bands. I'll be 73 this year. I've been through that thing. I, I can't identify the you know, new music. I don't identify with. Um, when I was growing up, oh, the big thing was when I was in third grade is to go to school on Saturday mornings. They'd open the gym and on the stage they'd put on Elvis Presley. <laughs> <laughs> he was new, right? <laughs> so I grew up with Lefty Frizzell. My dad loved country western. Oh, so he had Lefty Frizzell and Tex Ritter and uh, Hank Williams. You know, that right. was what I heard around the house. Then I got the, the classical bug. Oh, right. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of into techno pop myself. <laughs> I like Craftwork uh, uh, and some of those things. I, sure. I, like to, I like to study to them because there's no singing. I can right. just let it kind of bounce in my head a little bit. Yeah. It doesn't bother me. Too I, much. Used to, uh, I used to study a lot to uh, Gary Newman's. Uh, oh, yeah. soundscape albums that he had. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I, I like, uh, I like a little ambient, you know, uh, yeah. uh I love groove salad. Oh, it's, uh, streaming. Yeah. Have you ever yeah. heard of listen to groove salad? Love that. That's All right. <laughs> well, cool. Thank you so much for talking with us. And I hope you come back again for uh, another episode that we would really appreciate it. We had a great time talking with you today. Yeah. It was a blast. Send me a note. I got more stories. Some of them you'll like, and some you'll say, why did he tell us that? <laughs> well, good. We're, we want all of them. Absolutely. Thank you again, Stephen Branting. It yeah. was great having you on the show. Yeah. You guys enjoy the evening, and uh, get a hold of me anytime. Thanks. This episode of the show was brought to you by our Patreon subscribers. Thank you so much to all of you for supporting the show. If you would like to become a Patreon subscriber, head over to patreon.com slash oldspiralpodcast. That's going to do it for this week, but the shows are not over. Get caught up on the backlog of episodes if you haven't already, and thanks for listening.